And the verse that comes to mind when that song is sung is Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come all ye pining, hungry, poor. Pining really speaks of those that are aching and have a sense of their sin and their misery. And Jesus, when he said this, understood that in an unregenerate state, people are truly in an, in a miserable state in their sin. Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. And therefore, in order for you to experience the Savior's bounty, you have to first acknowledge your poverty, the fact that you are in sin and in misery because of your sin, because the wrath of God abides upon you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about lifting a light little burden off your back. Jesus is not talking about improving your marriage or your finances or your job or your career choice. Jesus is not talking about just making things better in your life so that you can live a better lifestyle, so that you can become healthier or more prosperous or wealthier or whatever you think your needs are. See, Jesus is getting to the deepest level of our existential need, which is for our souls to be redeemed. And so he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I pray that today, I may not know everyone here, and I may not know what state, what condition you are in. If you are a guest, we welcome you, but we welcome you more importantly to receive of the Savior's bounty, that you will find there a store that is full of rest for your soul, and that you would drink deeply from the well of Christ. Well, we come to our, maybe our final message on a series of messages that we have been doing, practical subjects of the Christian faith. Today, I want to talk about singleness. Now, don't all the married people get up and leave, okay? Because this is just as much for us as it is for them. I think we have invaluable discipleship and invaluable encouragement if we just have ears to hear. But as I think about this subject and just really think about when it's always dangerous when you teach on finances, marriage, family, singleness, you know, those kind of practical things. And the danger is, is that the preacher was trying to teach us how to have a better life. So that I can take the knowledge that I'm hearing from what he's saying. Yeah, he's doing some preachy stuff. But I, I basically, the gist of what he's saying is, this is how you can be a good person. And that is not at all what we are suggesting. Not in our church. We don't engage in that kind of moralistic, therapeutic, deistic preaching. If you look in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, I think this is an apt place to begin just to set the pace one last time, even before jumping into the subject of what we're talking about and how great the chasm is between moralism 
and biblical Christianity. I thought about this as I was standing there worshiping. I thought, I'm getting ready to come up here and deliver another message on practical uh, life, practical principles for living for single people. And the last thing I want people to derive from this is that I'm just giving people advice. That's not what we're doing. We are elucidating the Christian faith. And the contrast is right here in Galatians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul reminds the Galatians of this very distinction. When he says, he says, however, at that time when you did not know God. And here's the most important part. He says, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. You were enslaved to false religion. You were enslaved to your passions. You were enslaved to the culture. You were enslaved to materialism. You were enslaved to entertainment. You were enslaved to your own ways of thinking. You were enslaved to human philosophy. And he says, but now that you have come to know God, and then look at the most amazing qualification where Paul, as the pastor that he is, he's not splitting hairs, he's making a necessary, all-defining, distinctive, when he says, rather to be known by God. The most important thing in the universe is not your claim to know God, but rather if the truth holds, God knows you. Doesn't know about you. It's not what he's saying. He knows about you. He knows everybody. He knows Satan. He knows the demons. When it says that you are known by God, it means that God has entered into the most intimate communion bond with you in fellowship through Jesus Christ. And therefore he says, how is it that you turn back again, watch this, to the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? In other words, they were turning to religion. Going back to the observance of the Jewish calendar, and by doing that, Paul is saying, look, you had Christ. You had the glorious freedom, liberty, soul-liberating reality of fellowship and the sufficiency and the supremacy and the all-satisfying communion with Jesus Christ, and you're going back to the observance of the Jewish calendar. But my friends, I want to tell you that when he says the worthless elemental things, what he's saying is that you are, you are mistaken. If you think you can go back to dead religion and just add a little Christianity to the mix. No, no, no. Jesus is either all for you or he is nothing for you. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, it's in my notes somewhere. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. Christ is our life. If you are here and you think the preacher has advice for you today, I'll tell you, yeah, you may benefit from the advice that I'm about to give to my congregation, but the reality is is that you are not benefiting the way that God designed you to benefit from it if Christ is not your life. That has to come first. We will not allow 
people to put the cart before the horse. To try to clean themselves up on the outside, as Jesus would say. To kind of wash the cup on the outside, but inside, because there is no life of God in the soul of man, you are full of dead men's bones. We will not succumb to the temptation to put a sign outside of our church that says, need a better marriage? You know, it's like a drive through advertisement. It's like Christian fast food, spiritual fast food. Come get a little, you know, philosophy or whatever. No, this is worlds apart from moralism. Moralism is killing the evangelical church. It has laid waste to the evangelical landscape. Let me segue into one more thing, preliminary thing that I have to acknowledge before I begin, and that is that one of my heroes, one of my absolute heroes in the faith, went to be with the Lord this week, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, I can't recommend his ministry to you enough. Uh, Raise your hand in your mind if you have not spent at least two years drinking deeply from the well of R.C. Sproul, his lectures, his books, his podcasts, his teachings. If you have not done that, you are missing out on a treasure trove of spiritual and theological maturity and growth. R.C. Sproul had such a profound impact on my life. It was R.C. Sproul that awakened me to the holiness of God. It was R.C. Sproul that awakened me to to the infinity of God's holiness to see it in such a way that I'd never seen before. And I'll just share one little example with you of the way that R.C. Sproul would teach. He was the master teacher. He was, he was genius. He, he, he was so in the clouds, but in, in his own way, he was able to bring the hay off the loft so that the cows can get at it, if you know what I mean. He made things absolutely practical for all of us. He understood these super high philosophical lofty things and categories, and yet he made them so simple that the most common, you know, a, a person, the most, regardless of your spiritual maturity, you can understand it, you can gain, you can profit from something R.C. Sproul said. You know, R.C. Sproul made a comparison one time to understand the holiness of God. You know, he brought Steve Lawson up on stage, he put him over there, he brought his grandson on stage, and he put him over there, and he says, now, he looked over at Steve Lawson and says, now, you're Hitler, and you're Christ. And he walked over to Hitler, he put his arm around him, and he said, this I understand, I can identify with this, I'm comfortable here. And he walked across the stage, he walked over to Jesus, he put his arm around his grandson, he says, this is totally foreign to me. This is the holiness of God, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to behave in the presence of the holiness of God. And it's with examples like that that R.C. Sproul left an indelible mark on so many of us. And so in celebration and in praise for a life lived and a death died and an eternity entered by one of the most seminal preachers and teachers and theologians of the Christian faith. Oh, we had our differences. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I'm so utterly grateful. Not anymore. That's right. 
Well, now we want to turn to this subject, and so why don't we uh, open in a word of prayer, ask God to bless our time, and we will begin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your assistance. We ask for the blessing and the abundance of your spirit. We ask that you would teach us now. Open your word to us. Open up our hearts. Have us commune with you. Break down barriers. Tear down walls that people have in their hearts and their minds. Make the, make the preacher invisible. Let the word of God be preeminent. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, singleness is a very important subject, obviously. And uh, I think it's a subject that needs to be preached on, and too many times the subject is neglected in ministry. It's almost like you have two options. Either in the church, the subject of singleness is going to be altogether neglected, or you're going to try to turn the church into a dating, you know, a dating uh, uh, ministry, right? But I think it needs to be uh, talked about, because some people are either completely obsessed with the subject, if you're single, you're obsessed with the status of getting married, you're obsessed with finding somebody. You're obsessed with the fact that you are single and you are not okay with that. Or you're completely indifferent about the subject and you don't care. I would say both are not good. And so I think that we need to get our cue from Scripture and ask, what does Scripture have to teach about the subject of being single? And so what I want to do for us quickly is I just want to, I just want to point out several aspects here of what it means to be single and focus in on the calling of the single person. Let me begin with the first point, and that's this, that singleness is a calling to be fully devoted to the Lord. This is very important. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians, you know, I've never preached the chapter, but uh, in spending time here, there are so many enigmatic things. There are so many uh, difficult exegetical nuances. There's some really uh, you know, thorny uh, interpretive passages um, but it is where the subject of singleness is covered in Scripture more prominently than any other place in the entire Bible, really, is uh, this chapter right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 32. Listen to these words. He says, But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried, that's a single person, is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The, the woman is, who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. You see, what the Apostle Paul begins with here is an incredibly important assumption that he doesn't state for the record, so to speak. He just assumes it to be true. This is the distinction that is going to decide for you as a single person whether what Paul has to say in Corinthians is going to be of any value to you or not. It may not. It may not. Because what the Apostle Paul assumes is that you are someone that values and treasures being fully devoted to the Lord. That your life as a single person? That your focus? Is that what you want? 
So he is definitely making a distinction between there are some benefits, there are some advantages to being single, to being celibate, the whole worldview of what that looks like. But if Christ is not uppermost in your life and heart, then this advice would be of no benefit to you at all. Because it assumes that you have communion with God. It assumes that you treasure Christ, that you want to serve Christ, that you want to be devoted to Christ. That's what the whole assumption is here. And if we do this, then what we find is that the single believer has certain advantages that married people do not have, and that is absolutely right. The first advantage is this. If you truly treasure Christ, if you truly want to be devoted to the Lord and that you are content to be single, as long as God is going to have you to be single, the first advantage is that, is that it eliminates the trouble that comes from marriage. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is, and, and just to qualify here, this is not the Apostle Paul sort of casting shade on marriage or the, the status of being married. Not at all. He's not, this is not a pejorative of denunciation or a denunciation of marriage. It's not. But it's a contrast. It's a practical contrast. And practically, he's saying, hey, guess what? When you get married, get ready, because you are about to inherit, among all the good things about marriage, among all the blessedness of marriage, among all the beauty of marriage, you're about to inherit what he calls trouble. How many married people in here can testify that when you get married, you inherit trouble? Along with all the good things, be ready, you know, they'll qualify that. But let's be honest. I mean, what are we talking about? He says, I want to spare you from a burden. And what's the burden from? The burden is the burden of life, the burden of family life, the burden of conflict in marriage, the burden of children, the burden of finances, the burden of having to pay the bills now for somebody else or multiple people. It used to be just yourself. You could go where you want, do what you want, eat what you want, stay up as late as you want. Not anymore. Now you got responsibilities. Now you got to come home and you got to face the family one way or another. Well, the second thing is that single believers can remain emotionally, sexually, and spiritually undistracted by the world. That's what he says, that you would be undistracted so that you may please the Lord instead of pleasing your spouse. You can be undistracted by those things if you are concerned with being satisfied with Christ. We need to bear in mind that Paul's focus here is on these practical complexities again. It's not that he is elevating celibacy over marriage as if one is good and one is bad. That's not the dynamic. Again, uh, we, want to, we want to have a, a biblical view of marriage, which marriage is honorable in God's eyes. It's his will. It's his design. But again, it's intended to celebrate these glorious advantages that a single person has to being single. And instead of being concerned about how attractive you are or are not, instead of being concerned about whether or not you are fit enough, whether or not you are likable enough, whether or not somebody is going to like you, whether or not you are hardworking enough, trustworthy enough, whether or not you have good communication skills in order to be compatible with someone, all of those those sort of external issues give way to something greater, and that is that you may please the Lord. That's a great advantage. But really... 
Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. He says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. (laughs) There's no question that for the Apostle Paul, as it relates, strictly speaking, in terms of what you can do for the kingdom of God, or in the kingdom of God, for the Apostle Paul, he doesn't mince words. The superior life to be chosen is a life of singleness and celibacy. Let that sink down in your gut. He doesn't mince words. Sorry if you don't like it. But that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, let me try to interpret what Paul is saying. Look, I could not do what I'm doing if I had a a wife and children and a home and a job and things back home that I got to take care of and bills and those kind of worries. I could not do what I'm doing for the kingdom of God. I could not end up putting my head down on a chopping block to be martyred for Christ if I'm constantly worried about my family. Sound a little insane? Yeah. It's okay. Paul was a little crazy. We know that. You know, there he is in Ephesus. He's preaching. He's denouncing paganism. He's denouncing the goddess Artemis. The Romans come in because the people want to tear him to pieces and kill him. And they're dragging him out of the city. And he says, let me go preach to them again. He's crazy. A little bit. So you need to, you need to understand that when, what Paul has in his mind is not selfish, carnal freedom. It's not just freedom for freedom's sake. It's not just the, you know, the absence of inconvenience that marriage and family might bring. It is the promotion and the opportunity of a selfless abandon in the service of Christ. You see, if you don't have this presupposition, then, then Paul's advice here is of little use to you. But because Paul, what he's thinking as a missionary theologian, what he's thinking is like, man, because I'm single, I have nothing really holding me down. You know what I could do? I could go around the Roman world in 30 years and I can plant churches in every city and I can establish elders in every city and I can go to Ephesus, I can go to Thessalonica, I can go to Corinth, I can go here, I can go there. By the way, they just announced recently in the news, they found the city of Corinth perfectly preserved underwater. Uh, 1,400 years ago, a massive earthquake destroyed the city of Corinth. They have found it underwater, like I said, in pristine condition. Wow. Let's see if any manuscripts survived underwater. Yeah, so for Paul, as a missionary theologian, he sees that he has these advantages. But when you're married, let's face it, You can't even go to dinner without permission. And that's a good thing. That's right. Your spouse should know if you're going out to dinner. But let's face it. For you to go to a prayer meeting, to go to Bible school, to go to seminary, for you to serve in the church, to do various things, the family has to be taken care of first. And that's the way it should be. But if you're single, you have the advantage to serve God undistracted, unhindered, unfettered to the glory of God. 
Uh, there's another thing. Singleness is not just a calling to be totally devoted to the Lord, and we can stay there and camp out there all day. As I looked at these points, I thought, yeah, you know, these are each a sermon unto themselves. But the second thing is this, that singleness is also a calling to be sexually pure. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. I want to point out to you a distributive pronoun that Paul uses here to make sure that everyone is covered under this exhortation. It's not just singles, it's married people, it's everybody in Christ. But that would include single people. Notice what he says here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. There is a, um, there's an interpretation, I believe an erroneous interpretation among some of the exegetical commentators out there that would say that when he says to possess your own vessel, they take it to mean that each of you should know how to basically obtain a vessel. So it's almost like referring to each of you should know how to acquire a spouse. That's wrong. I think what he's saying here is that each of you knows how to possess his body, your body. In what? In sanctification and in honor. He says in verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Uh, Incidentally, if you look at verse 5 when he says like the Gentiles who do not know God. So what is he referring to? Just Gentile people and not Jewish people? All Jewish people know God? No. This is actually an instance in where the Greek word Gentile has now taken on new meaning. It used to be used in the context of the Jewish worldview to refer to everybody who was outside of the covenant blessings of God. You were a Gentile. Paul uses that same language now to refer to people not outside of the covenant of Israel, but outside of Christ. Now that you are, if you are outside of Christ, you are a Gentile. You are somebody who is not ceremonially clean and in covenant with God. Wow. He says that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. When he says transgress and defraud a brother in the matter, what he's saying is that we do not sin against each other through adultery or fornication or any immorality. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you, namely that there is vengeance to face for that verse 7 for god has not called us to the purpose of impurity but in sanctification so he who rejects this is not rejecting man but god who gives his holy spirit to you and actually if you look at verse 8 it is actually the articular form of god it is the god you guys see that in your translation? It is not just God, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So just essentially emphasizing that it is the God that actually imparts to you the, 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 the empowering presence of his spirit that enables you to overcome sexual immorality. It is that God, it is the God who has commanded this to you, not man. So you don't reject man, but God. And therefore, but back up, look at verse 4. He says here that each of you. And that would include single people. 
This is a universal command. The opportunity here is that you would use your time and singleness to remain pure. What does the culture tell you to do? The culture tells you the time to be single is the time to explore. The time to be single is the, is the time to date as many people as you can. That's, that's what he's talking about, about the Gentile world. It's the world of the profane. It's the world of impurity. Quite the contrary. What does Hebrews tell us? Hebrews 12.14 says, If we do not possess the holiness, we will not see the Lord. This is the same thing. Paul is saying for single people and everyone that your, your life is to be characterized by, above everything, sexual purity. Singleness is not an advantage to single believers who are devoting themselves to immorality, impurity, lustful passions, defrauding one another through adultery or fornication. There is no blessing in that life, only vengeance. Only God knows how long you will be single. Only God knows if you will get married. I know people that want to be married and they're not married and God has not provided a spouse. They haven't found anybody. And I know understand there are practical reasons for that. Maybe that is due to your own neglect. Maybe that is due to your standards. Maybe they are unreasonably high. I knew a brother like that. In the body, out of the body, I won't say. But I knew someone like that in the church. He was so incredibly picky. Nobody was ever good enough. And so he dated person after person after person after person as a Christian. I thought, that is not what you should be doing as a Christian. That's not why you're single. It's to try as many flavors as you can until you get the one that you think you like. That's just not what we're... That's worldly thinking. I just... I'm a firm believer. Maybe this is kind of old-fashioned. I know it's old-fashioned. You know why? Because when I heard of eHarmony... You guys have heard of that? I know you guys have heard of that. When I heard of that, I about fell out of my skin. What? So you just you go on a site and you go in there and try to hook up with other Christian people? I, there's something wrong with that. I don't know. Just wait on God. Maybe that's too old-fashioned. Maybe that's too naive. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what Paul has to say about all that. But God only knows. And I think that right now what you're called to do is to depend on him completely. And you need to be honest, too, about where you're at. If you are gifted with the gift of celibacy which is a very small minority group of people within the church that truly have the gift of celibacy. But if you do, that to me would be the greatest advantage of all. That would sort of preclude the whole reason for you to even pursue a relationship. But if you do not have that gift, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, each one has a gift from God, and there he's referring about whether you are called to celibacy or not, But the majority of us do not. And therefore, the majority of us need to look at singleness as an opportunity to prepare for marriage. That's what all of this is all about, is preparing for marriage. And so the main way that you prepare for marriage, I'll tell you right now, is to keep yourself pure. I mean, don't you know that the more you... You, uh, you fail or disobey in this, the worse your, the worse your marriage is going to be. I mean, how many of us can testify? You can come up here and horror story after horror story because of things that we did when we were single that went on into our marriage. And so be careful, brothers and sisters, because the Bible says God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And I've often likened marriage unto an ATM machine. 
Sorry for the crude analogy. But whatever you deposit is what you will withdraw. And if you are depositing, depositing, depositing into your future marriage immorality and sin, then you will reap the whirlwind of corruption. That's just a fact. And so we have to humbly listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying. You know, he gave some really good advice to one single man. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 because Timothy is a prime example of a young single person who, as far as we know, we have no evidence that Timothy ever married. We know that Paul was not married. Paul was single. That's why he's saying, be as I am. But we also have no evidence that Timothy ever got married. Isn't that amazing? It makes sense, too, because in Acts chapter 16, uh, you know, Paul picks up Timothy. He's a really young man, probably in his early 20s. He picks him up for a, de- for a life of devotion to the ministry to go with him along in all these missionary endeavors. And so he had no time for marriage and family. He just didn't. And then when he got to Ephesus and started pastoring the church of Ephesus, Paul gives him, Paul gives him this advice. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 4.12. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. A lot of singles can resonate with that, especially if you're young. I know that not all singles are young, but many singles can resonate with this despising because, you know, people that are married, they have children, they're grown, they're maybe grown children, they're older in the Lord. You know, they may be tempted to look at you as a young single person as like, I mean, what do you really know, kid? And, 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 and this, is, this is really true about, about Timothy. That word where it says here, let no one look down on you, that's, 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 that's a very uh, sort of a, a sterile way to translate that, that word. Uh, the Greek word actually speaks of despising, uh, literally of a, of a loathing of, of, of Timothy. It was almost like, I mean, there's young Timothy, maybe in his late 20s, early 30s. That's what the commentator suggests. There he is, single young man, no, no wife, no family. He's pastoring a church. He's got older uh, people in the congregation, and he's going to give them advice on marriage and family. I mean, how much respect do you think he's going to have? But there may have been older people in the Lord in Timothy's church, and they may have been older as far as age, but maybe they were not more pure. Let no one despise your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. The single person should take this, this, uh, this verse and really make it their own. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, again, a parallel passage. He says to Timothy, Timothy, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. See, here's the deal. Where serious and sober and sanctifying pursuit of righteousness is not present in your life, the single believer and singleness ceases to be an advantage to you and can become the soil for backsliding immorality and apostasy. That is the reality of it. Let me give you one more, at least one more point here. And that is that singleness is a calling also to prepare for marriage. Prepare your vessel, sanctification and honor, abstain from sexual immorality. Why are you doing that? Well, the vast majority of you are doing it so that you can prepare when marriage comes. That you will be, in a sense, the best candidate 
uh, it's kind of like ministry. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.20, in a large house, there are only, uh, not, there are not only gold, uh, excuse me, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, honor and dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses themselves from the latter, he says, for from these things, talking about verses 14 to 19, which is all talking about uh, sin and division and just different sin that was going on. He says, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work, including Christian marriage. Christian marriage. Let me point out three things that you want to be preparing as a single believer. Number one, you want to prepare your character. Well, right now, maybe you don't have anyone in front of you. Maybe you don't see him or her. And so what do you have? Well, you have yourself to get ready for that. And the way that you do that is you focus on your character. Build up your character. That's what you need to be doing. How do you do that? Well, I would say this. Character is to be pursued in the context of the local church. Do it in the community of believers. I'm going to come back to this point. But single people should be the ones who are the most devoted to the church. Let me say that again. Single people should be the ones who are the most devoted to the church. You are free. You're not like most of us. That we got to go home and deal with Husband, wife, children, houses, all of that. Well, maybe you have a house, but and if you do, you're blessed as a single. But you're freer. You're more freed up. You're unhindered. And therefore, you should, above everybody else, should be giving yourself to evangelism and fellowship and church attendance and discipleship. Don't isolate yourself as a single person. Write this down. If you are single, write this down. Do I isolate myself? Question mark. Because isolation, especially for a single person, is not good. It was not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for you to pursue isolation either. Proverbs 18, the person who isolates themselves rages against all sound wisdom. You don't want to be a lone ranger. That's not why you're single. So you can be off on, by yourself doing whatever. Everyone should know what you're doing. Everybody should know what's up with the single person. Where are they at? How are they doing? How's their heart? How's their walk? How's their purity? Sisters ministering to other sisters. Brothers reaching out and keeping other brothers accountable. Absolutely right. You know, this is really lacking in a lot of uh, single people. This devotion to the local church. Because if you think about it, if you can't be disciplined with the people that you're going to see maybe once or twice a week in the church, I mean, how are you going to be disciplined when you have to go home with the same person over and over and over? So you better learn to love the people around you. Build up your character. Um, start developing, you know, these different characteristics that are going to be good for you in marriage. Start developing your communication skills. Start develop, developing the ability to engage people. Now, there's so much that I can say about this. Um, but at the same time, Paul goes on to talk about something else. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he tells us that a person's commitment to the church is built on love. And just like in marriage, if we really truly love each other, we'll be devoted to one another. Well, you'll be devoted to the church if you love the church. 
Look at this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. This is the mindset every single person should adopt, and every one of us too. But singles, because we're focusing on you today. Verse 9, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. See, when he says taught by God, The phrase taught by God is indicative of regeneration. In other words, this flows out of having come into contact with God through salvation, and that teaches you the principle of love. And just like the Apostle John would say, he who does not love his brother is not of God. Same idea. He says, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, and then don't 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 neglect this final phrase. But I urge you, brethren, excel still more. And that's right. That's what single people should be doing. Pressing in to the love of the brethren, not isolating yourself away. The other thing that you should be doing as a single person right now is prepare your standards. What standards are you going to hold? Because, I mean, some single people are completely uh, oblivious to their standards. They don't even know what they believe. They don't even know where their convictions lie. They don't know what they believe about X, Y, and Z. Now's the time for you to become self-conscious about where your standards are at. Theologically, what kind of church are you going to go to? What kind of theology are you going to expose yourself to? What are some of the things that you're going to be uh, okay with? What are you going to allow? What standards are you going to hold f- looking forward into the future as you start thinking about family and children? Are you going to be a homeschooling father, mother? Is that going to be a a hill to die on? You better determine that now before it gets too late. And then when you get with the person that you want to be with, you better talk that out before you get married. You better think about all those things. Now's the time for you to start developing your standards that you are going to live with, with your husband or wife, Lord willing, for a lifetime. Finally, prepare your lifestyle. Again, adopt habits, discipline, things that are actually going to bless your future spouse. This is huge. Now, I'm going to attack this in two prongs, okay? Ready? First the women, then the men, okay? So for a woman, the type of lifestyle that you want to adopt, the type of habits and discipline that you want to adopt, this is really theologically deep, Okay? Just prepare yourself here. Learn how to cook and clean and take care of people. Turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I told you it was going to be really profound. Beginning in verse 3, it says, Older women likewise are be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Verse 4. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. See, I think naivete has led us to think that these practical issues, love your husband, be a worker at home, love your, ch- your children, be sensible, pure, be a kind person, I think that Sometimes we've underestimated those things as if they're not important because they're so practical. And that's wrong. 
We need to cultivate that. I mean, look, when you have grown up as a single woman that has not really given herself to cooking and cleaning her whole life, uh, and your husband tells you to get some raw meat and season it, you're going to have to touch it. You're going to have to get your hands dirty and get in there and touch all that raw meat. Then you've got to clean it afterwards. Or maybe you hate fish. And he's going to tell you to cook him some fish. See, it just boils down to taking the practical subject of homemaking, taking that subject up, but taking it all the way up. All the way up to God's throne room. And seeing it for what it is, that it is a sphere, a domestic sphere that God is going to call you to, where you are going to be a priestess in your home, and the way that you conduct your home is going to redound as worship to God, or you will neglect to see it in the light that it is. Because that's what it is. This is worship. Taking care of children, changing diapers. Worship. Your whole life is worship. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. All life is is, is sacred to the Lord. And so we have to have our view transformed, to quote R.C. Sproul, renewing your mind on these issues that are so incredibly pertinent. Caring, compassion, all of these things. Chastity modesty, all the things. I'm thinking of all the texts that refer to this. These are the things that a single woman needs to be giving herself to. What about a man? What are the things that a man should cultivate while he's single? Well, number one, cultivate a strong work ethic because you're, you're going to be called to be a provider in the home. And I understand You know, sometimes women are co-providers in the home, and that's true. But I tell you what, my universal experience is that once children comes, a lot of times that changes. No matter how good the intentions are, no matter how hard you work at it, you know what? Things fall through the cracks, and things just have to be taken care of. And the husband is not going to be staying at home with the baby. Period. God designed it that way. God's not a feminist. Sorry. And he doesn't apologize for that. Men are to be the provider, the protector and the leader of their home. And therefore, develop characteristics that are going to enable you to be a good leader in your home. Uh, This is what I was talking about earlier in terms of develop communication, learn how to listen. Ladies are like, yep, yep, yep. You need to be willing to be patient. Single men are, you know, when you're single, you just want to go out and just live life and you're just waiting for nobody. But you know what? If we take the qualifications of an elder, it says that you shall not be self-willed. Which means, the word self-willed literally means that you have to be considerate for how other people feel based on your choices. Self-willed means you don't care about how other people feel. That is deadly in marriage. Amen? You have to be constantly considerate. And so you need to learn uh, how to do those things. You need to become responsible. You need to become orderly. Don't be lazy, guys. And listen, as one you know, former lazy single man, plenty of laziness that I can point to in my past and today. Don't think I've mastered all this. But laziness is a killer. 
Because laziness breeds apathy. And therefore, don't be lazy. Uh, have vision for your family. What is the vision that you're going to have for your home? Now is the time to think about that. And while I'm just on a, on a, on a to-do list, let me give you some more to-dos. Learn to put toxic attitudes to death. Number one, anger. You better deal with your anger now before you get in the home with another person, with a spouse. This goes both ways, husbands and wives. Deal with anger. Kill anger before anger kills your marriage. Selfishness. Maybe idiosyncrasies that you need to be flexible about. Personality traits, things that might hinder your relationship, you know, um, because it's just, it's, it's not reasonable. Learn to be flexible, easygoing, not hard-headed, right? One famous theologian said, blessed are the flexible, they shall not break. That's right, you know, when you're dealing with a family, a lot of nuance. You, you, you need to approach things and be flexible, not always the authoritarian. You have to have a shepherd's hand when you deal with family and marriage. Last thing, singleness is also a calling to completely trust the Lord. Look at back, go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 27. This is some of the nitty-gritty stuff that goes on in this chapter. But the apostle, because the apostle Paul makes some at face value, some really outlandish statements like what? Uh, beginning in verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Huh? So I can't seek a spouse, right? What the Apostle Paul is probably getting at here, because if you look at verse 26, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Something was going on probably in Corinth that put some particular pressure on the whole enterprise of family and marriage. That, that's one possibility. The other thing is that in light of the eschaton, and that's another very possible thing, look down at uh, verse 31. In other words, because Paul had this, this eschatological worldview where he says this, be as those that use the world, but don't make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. So maybe he's just saying that in light of the fact that the time has been shortened, that the second coming is imminent, that it is superior not to get married. That's why I think what he's dealing with here is some particular issue was going on. Uh, some would point to the early martyrdom that took place in Corinth. Some, the persecution was really high. Some, some commentators have pointed out that during the time of the writing of the letter, there was a famine that spread through Corinth, and that that famine caused uh, a, a nation or, you know, a, a cultural chaos everywhere. It wouldn't take, in the ancient world, if there was a, a dire famine, uh, it's not like our times that we're living in now. I mean, you can't just drive, get in your car and go to the town next to you. I mean, it is crisis. And so it could have been some sort of particular crisis that through this whole Corinthian situation into convulsions. But the reality is that ultimately the principle we can derive from this is you need to trust God with your status. 
Because just in the same way that it is not right for a person to go from married to unmarried, right? That we understand. Or look at this. Go to verse 21. He says, were you called when you were a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you are able to be free, rather do that, of course. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one of you is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. In other words, do not try to force a status change. There were some that were going so far with this, they were thinking, well, if the eschaton is at hand, then maybe we should just dissolve our families, dissolve our marriages, and just go out and live for Christ. Absolutely not. You're to remain in the condition that you are. Trust God with your marital status. Trust God with your singleness status. And He will provide for you. That's so important. Being single ultimately is an exercise in trusting God. One final exhortation for us, and it's this. What responsibility does the church bear with single people? Uh, This is where the members of our church, speaking directly to you, maybe you are completely unaware that we have single people in our church. Well, there are. There are single people in our church. Maybe, maybe you've never once thought in your mind, you know what, I'm going to invite this single person over for dinner and minister to them. I tell you, we should be doing that regularly, checking in on that single sister, that single brother, and finding out how are you doing, what's going on in the Lord, how's your heart, how are you doing with your devotions to the Lord? Are you pursuing God? Are you taking advantage of your singleness to the Lord? This is us as a community coming around these people, loving them, fostering a familial environment where they feel safe. And don't let them get away. Don't let them fall through the cracks. If you start seeing that single people are just kind of Sliding in the background, they're just not really involved, they're just not really in the mix, they don't go to small groups, they don't kind of come early, they leave early, they don't, they're never around. Go get that person. Sick them. <laughs> Let's not be negligent with the single people that God has entrusted us to, t- to minister to them as a church. Amen? And let's pray. Father... Lord, we come before you now knowing that you, as the sovereign God of all things, that you have our times in your hands. Marriage itself is temporary. It is transient. It will not last on into eternity. And therefore, it cannot be everything for us. You have to be everything for us. And so would you remind our single people here that You have to be uppermost in their heart that you need to be for them all satisfying. That you need to be for them preeminent, supreme in their affections. And when they feel themselves lonely and when they feel themselves depressed, discouraged, lift up their heads. Encourage them, O God. Grant them faith to set their eyes upon you to get a vision of who you are, to set their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, and to know that it is a loving Heavenly Father who knows, as Jesus said, who knows 
that they need these things and that you will provide. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.